knowing what this tool called money is for helps us make a decision ahead of time. I'm about to make this purchase. Is this aligned with what money needs to do for me? And just by asking that question, just by asking other questions, what will I do with this? How will I feel tomorrow? What if I waited until tomorrow? Just getting here in your head and asking some questions starts to grow the impulse and the purchase, grow that space. And now you've turned an impulsive purchase into a deliberate purchase or an intentional purchase. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another episode with our guest, Derek Hagen. Derek is a repeat guest and I'm excited for our new conversation around money, mindfulness, and meditation. Before we get into this episode, I'm going to ask you a favor I always ask you for, but if you can please help me out and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews really do help bring great guests back onto the show and new guests to the show. So Derek was one of the early guests on the podcast, and it was really interesting to see how his perspective and influence from meditation and mindfulness has really started to change the way he approaches financial life, or as a word he says, intentional finances. We talk about how often we are totally unaware or unconscious of the many judgments that we have that often keep us stuck in our old money stories and how practicing mindfulness can help us enhance the experiential relationship we have with money and how there are common misconceptions between what mindfulness is and what meditation is. Derek does a wonderful job of explaining the difference and how they both can fit as wonderful tools to bring a little bit more mindfulness to our finances and to our relationship with money. He also talks about what I thought was really interesting is he talks about how we operate from this default state and that just keeps us in line trugging through life and we often don't question that default state and utilizing practices in and around mindfulness can help us observed without judgment to see if we want to continue with that default state. And towards the end, he really talks about this idea of intentional financial living and how it can bring us greater joy and happiness in our lives. So I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Derek Hagen. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here again. Again, yes. Repeat show number two. I feel like there's like four or five who have repeated. So welcome back. I don't know what episode this will be, but it's going to be pushing the the 100 mark. And I think our first one was four or five, something like that. So it's good to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel like a lot has changed since we talked, especially at least my observation of the work you're doing now in and around mindfulness 
meditation and how that intersects with money. And I'm really looking forward to diving into this intersectionality of mindfulness, meditation, and money and purpose. I really like the work you're doing. But before we get into, I guess, those specific questions, I want you to take us back to a recent trip you had to Las Vegas. Actually, I believe it was 2013, so maybe not so recent, but take us back to Las Vegas when you made your debut on the Penn & Teller show. That's a funny way to put that. So Penn & Teller, to those who don't know, or a duo, a magic duo. And if you don't know my name, you know them probably by the tall guy who talks a lot and the short little guy that doesn't do any talking. And I consider myself a amateur magician, I guess. Maybe that's even giving me too much credit, but I'm fascinated by magic. Derek, my curiosity is like bursting through right now. Do you actually know magic? Like, Do you actually perform magic tricks? Perform is used very loosely there. I, I know magic tricks, yes, but I've, ne- I don't, I've never had a gig other than like nieces, nephews, friends. Anybody who watch, right? <laughs> okay, we're going to park that and maybe we'll get some magic tricks later. But okay, so back to the story. <laughs> yeah, so that is the reason that I was fascinated by it. some of these very famous magicians. During a trip to Las Vegas, my wife and I went to go see Penn & Teller at a place called the Rio. It's not on the Strip. The Strip is like Las Vegas Boulevard. Anybody not familiar? And that's where most of the hotels and casinos are. But there's this one hotel that's kind of off the off the strip, but they have buses, shuttles that get you from the strip to the couple of hotels that are off the strip. Uh, and this is early. We were not, we're still cheap, but we're not as cheap as we were then. We didn't want to get a, a taxi or some kind of shared ride service. We hopped on this free shuttle, which meant we have to wait for this bus. We get on this bus. It was just us on it and one other person. And as we're driving, we're looking at the sites because we don't see off the strip very often. And this person just starts talking, talking to himself. I thought he was talking to us, but I looked over and full on conversation, hands moving, you know, gesturing, hand talking to himself, asking questions, answering questions, full on like actual conversation. And so now I'm, I'm torn, like a little bit freaked out, but a little bit intrigued and a little bit what's, what's going on with this guy. And I look at him, but I don't want him to know that I'm looking at him. So I kind of look at him out of the corner of my eye, and then I think, well, wait a second, this is a crazy person. This crazy person probably has the knife and probably going to get stabbed or knifed or something. This crazy people ride the bus in Las Vegas. This is the story I'm telling myself. So just judging, judging, judging away, we finally get to the show. And we get to the show. We go up on stage. I let you come on stage first. Take a look around. Look at the stage. Look at these boxes that they have up there. Uh, and that's weird. They're kind of making this look for trap doors and wires and stuff. There's nothing there. Of course, if there was something there, they wouldn't let us see it anyways, but it was a, it was a misdirection. So everyone though, everyone's allowed to go up. Yep. Everybody, okay. anybody, if you want to, you can go up. And then there's, you know, like if you go to a wedding, they have a table usually with a book, sign in with your name in your city that you're from. They had one of these books center stage. So we sign it and then we turn around and we look out. It's a huge theater, huge, normal, uh, main level, and there's balconies, and we joked, or I joked with my wife, it's, wow, look at all these people. Wouldn't that be cool if they were here to see us? And she said, no, that wouldn't be very cool at all. So we got off the stage, took our seats, and it's three sections. There's a middle section, then a left and a right. So we're not that far back. We're like 10, 10 rows back, and she's in the aisle, and I'm the second seat in. So Ben and Teller come out, they do their show, or a couple of, couple of tricks, and then they need a volunteer from the audience. I don't know this. But I think that there's something on stage, microphones or something 
to try to capture who would be the best people to gather as their guests. Because I was making this joke about, hey, wouldn't that be cool if we were here for the, you know, if everybody's looking at us? Because he looked at my wife and he made a beeline for her. So we need a, we need a volunteer. He looks her right in the eyes and he starts walking fast towards her. And then he gets to her and then he looks at me and says, sir, would you mind coming up on stage? And I speechless because I had no idea that was going to happen. I was excited to see her go upstairs. So I go up on stage. I do the trick. The trick was a garbage bag. Till I got in a garbage bag and Penn stuck a tube full of helium in it. And so this thing blew up. I'm holding the top of it. And then there was a flash of light. The garbage bag's over my head like a balloon and Keller's shaking my hand. No idea how that happened. So I get back and my wife says, God, that was really funny. I said, you mean the trick? She goes, no, all this stuff that he was saying when you were going up to the stage. And I said, what? He was talking when we were going up to the stage. And so at this moment, I realized, well, wait a second. I was just having a conversation with myself. I was thinking, why did he pick me? Why, what am I supposed to do? Oh, man. Did he do this because of what I set up on stage? Uh-oh, there's stairs. I'm going to probably fall on these stairs. Don't trip. Don't trip. Uh-oh, the more I think about tripping, it's more likely I'm going to trip. And I'm just in my head the whole time. And I suddenly realized that that guy that I was just making fun of on the bus, I'm exactly the same as that guy. The only difference is I didn't say it out loud, but make no mistake, I was having a conversation with myself. Uh, the only difference is I kept my mouth shut, but that was like the realization that this is pretty much the default state for us. We are always talking to ourselves all the time. Uh, some people call it an inner critic, but there's this voice in your head all the time. And so that started my fascination with how do we handle this voice, this person that's in our head all the time? Well, we definitely, definitely do have this person in our minds all the time. I, I want to go to that person, but it sounds like dreams do come true, that you made it on that stage to, <laughs> to, in Vegas doing magic. That's a good, that's a good reframe. I, I was performed, or I was part of a performance on stage with Ben and Teller. In Vegas, at the Rio. In Vegas. So when we think about money and money stories, this voice that you talk about is constantly going in and around in our minds. And I have an intimate relationship right now because I'm trying to understand that voice more because for a while I just distract or distracted myself from it. So you talked about the default state and I want to dive into the default state because when I look at what you're talking about, about these, this inner dialogue that we have with ourselves, when I look at our money stories and specifically around the relationship we have with our money, there's this constant unconscious chatter going on. It's easy to fall into that default state of just letting it go, letting it go. And, and we can see how the state has, has us conforming to these socially created constructs that have us working tirelessly while our kids grow older, working so many hard hours, not saying that working's bad, but doing it through the default state. Potentially, we're, we're missing things. And it seems like we rarely question this default state unless we get called up on stage with Penn and Teller or global health crisis like COVID has had some people questioning this. And I know there's been tragedies on the, on the negative health effects, but for some, this COVID lockdowns have had them questioning the default state. So as we aspire to, I don't know if it's break free, I want to hear your perspective, break free, understand the default state more. How can mindfulness, meditation help us do so? There's a lot of, a lot of doors we can walk through there. A lot so of we'll, doors there. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I'm happy to go through all, all of them, unlock them, and come back out. It's kind of sometimes helpful to think about our interstate and then the outside world. And the interstate is, well, that's the voice that's that's always talking. It's our thoughts. It's our feelings. It's our motivation. It's sensations. It's tingling. It's everything that's happening inside of us. And then there's the outside world that we are in, we are a part of. If we are not paying attention, and we'll talk more about attention, I imagine, later, paying attention. If we're not paying attention to our interstates, the internal stuff, what's going on inside of our body, it feels like we are just out in the world reacting to everything that's happening to us. So and if we have no communication with our inner self, the only benchmark we have is what's going on all around us. Social comparison becomes our tool that we use to see how good we're doing. Because I, I have no idea any, any underlying, this is kind of where meaning and purpose work get looped into this too. But if I don't have any reason for what I'm doing, if I don't really know why, other than I think I'm supposed to, well, this is a game that I'm never going to win. Because there's always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be somebody faster, more efficient, more money, more wealthy, and so on. Or somebody with less money, but they're happier because they, they know what their enough is. It doesn't matter. Because there's always going to be somebody. There's not like one person that we compare ourselves to that person. Once I make more than that person, or have more time off than that person, or have more flexibility, then they'll be happy. No, it's I compare my income to you, my time off to that other person, and I compare my uh, vacations to this other person over here. So there's never... You're, you're never going to be satisfied. You, you make me think that we are not kind to ourselves on this comparison, this desire to compare ourselves to feel not enough. Well, let, let's go to attention. How have you experienced or seen that practicing mindfulness can help us pay more attention? Let's define attention first within the context of awareness. So these are often used interchangeably, but they're quite different. So awareness is the full spectrum of anything that could be paid attention to. So that's the big circle. The big circle is awareness. There's something in my awareness. There's something over here in my peripheral vision. I'm not paying attention to it, but I know it's there. If there's a big crash over on this side, I will become aware of it very quickly. I'll have to pay attention to it if it activates any kind of stress response. Within that big field of awareness is your attention. So attention is, you can think of that as focused awareness. What are you paying attention to? It's a spotlight within the field of awareness. Concentration, another word that gets conflated here. Concentration is kind of like the ability to hold your attention in one spot. Can you hold your attention on this one thing? Can people do that? <laughs> <laughs> that's, so that's how, it's, how it should be. Or this is kind of what the core tenet of mindfulness is. It's training attention. If you don't tra train your attention, then you become distracted. And what distraction looks like is if you look at that flashlight of attention within your field of awareness, it's going all over the place. It's over here, and then it's over there, and then it hurts something over there, and there's something shiny over here, and then, oh, what was that thought? Oh, now I need to do that. Boom, 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 boom. That's called distraction. That's called mindlessness, being mindless, the opposite of being mindful. So that's one of the main aspects of mindfulness is training your attention, being able to focus your attention. You articulated that very well. I appreciate that broader, moving, more narrow. How about mindfulness? So this is a word in and around this, what we're talking about here, but another word that maybe it's not fully understood. So from the, the work you've been doing, can you kind of break down the tenets of mindfulness similar to what you did with awareness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this might be a good place to, to talk about what mindfulness is not. 
because it's become very popular very quickly. And anytime something becomes very popular very quickly, especially in the world of smartphones, when anybody can just create an app, right? So all of a sudden, it's become in vogue to have a mindfulness app or to talk about mindfulness, whatever that is, and to confuse mindfulness and meditation, uh, which we'll talk about, I imagine. So mindfulness, it is not about changing your thoughts. It is not about positive thinking. It's not about eliminating negative thoughts. This is a very popular belief. Uh, mindfulness is about thinking positive or, or being positive all the time. That's not what it's about. It's also not about stopping your thoughts. It's not about sitting here and, and not having any thoughts. Some of the, I mean, it's justified the way people come to these beliefs because I was just telling you how we have automatic thoughts and we pay attention to them and we're talking to ourselves all the time. So it makes sense why we would think, okay, well, mindfulness must be the opposite of that, which is not thinking. You can't not think until you pass away. That's the only time you're going to stop thinking. So then mindfulness is also, it's not about a state of being passive and this be present and not worrying about the future and just letting everything happen to you. That's not what mindfulness either. It's not necessarily religious. It has its roots in some religions. Some religions practice various versions of mindfulness, but it's not necessarily religious. So these are some of the most common misconceptions about it. Now, the components that I talk about of mindfulness, awareness, I'm sorry, attention is the first one, focusing that attention. And within attention, you can think about there's demands on your attention. So things will call all your attention. If I hear a crash behind me, I'm going to turn around and see what that was. Or if I'm on the, in, the, in nature and I hear a sound, I might run or hide or figure out what was that sound. So that took my attention away. That was an external demand on my attention. But there's also internal demands on my attention. So a thought pops in, and now I pay attention to that thought. Okay, that's a demand on my attention, or a feeling, or an emotion. And I start to pay attention to that emotion. It called my attention away. So the opposite of that is regulating your attention, and that's where mindfulness is. Is going from, or again, you're never ever going to be in a state where nothing ever demands your attention, but can we regulate our attention more often and more easily? So then a second piece is judgment. And judgment, one of the definitions many people will give from mindfulness is paying attention non-judgmentally or without judgment. And judgment simply means we are labeling it as good or bad or right or wrong. We attach a label to something. So, and desirable and undesirable. So if there's a, an emotional state, I want to feel joy, I don't want to feel fear. And so there's this natural tem or temptation to push away the fear and latch on to the, the joy. But non-judgmentally says, well, first of all, let's try to eliminate those. I shouldn't say try to eliminate. Let's recognize that we're judging. Because we're always going to judge. That's the automatic pattern that happens to us. So can we be aware that we're judging? Can I notice, hey, I just, I just labeled that as good or I just labeled that as bad. Being aware of the judgment is helpful. We get in trouble when we act on judgments that we didn't even know we made. I just want to say, I, I appreciate that. I want, I want to keep going, but you hear people like, don't judge, don't judge, like remove the judgment. And I like how you put being aware of the judgment and then regulate that because I feel like it's similar to the happiness thing. Be happy, be happy. Oh no, I'm not happy. I'm a terrible person. 
don't judge, don't judge. Wait, I'm judging. I'm a terrible person. So I like how you differentiated there or highlighted our concentration to this idea that uh, we can be aware of that judgment and then self-regulate. Yeah, you can take that flashlight of attention and better put it on your judgment, know when you're judging. And that would just help you make better decisions. Your automatic responses will be less automatic and they'll be less likely to be something you're going to regret. So we can be aware when we're judging. We can also be we're never going to stop judging, but we can be more lenient around what we consider right and wrong. Some of your listeners might be familiar with nonviolent communication. And in that book, like one of the number one step is observe without judging. That doesn't mean you don't have a judgment. Hey, you're being a jerk. I might still think you're a jerk, but the observation is you said this one thing. That's the observing without the judging. And that's very difficult to do without practice is to separate the observation from the judgment. But mindfulness helps with that, to know when we're judging. You bring up this book, Nonviolent Communication. For those of the listeners aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit about it? And maybe even their little, their process for responding. Because the amount of people I've talked to about that and everyone that I've talked to find it so beneficial. So maybe just share a bit about this wonderful book. And sorry to put you on the spot on this one. No, this, that's that's great. It's It's almost like a... That makes so much sense after you hear it, but it's so different from how we normally talk. So nonviolent communication, it sounds nonviolent. Okay, so what does that mean? What's violent communication? Well, nonviolent communication just simply means, all right, I'm trying to communicate something to you or we're trying to communicate something to each other. And this is a way of trying to get our needs met. I want to communicate something because there's a need that I want to get met, even if that need is helping you get your needs met. So that's kind of the core. Outside of that, you've got the strategy that we use to meet that need. All right. So in a nutshell, nonviolent communication is addressing the need, not strategy, because so much of our disagreements are around an incorrect strategy. So this this will loop into to mindfulness because it's about taking a step back and being careful with our responses, our mindful choices. You say something I don't like, I respond to your strategy, not your need. Okay, now I just violated your rights. And now you're going to respond to my strategy. And now we're in the cycle that we forgot even what we were arguing about, which is way over here. And we got over there with our attacking the wrong thing. So like step one is to observe without judging. As If I were having a disagreement, I'm going to try to say something that happened factually, as factually as I can get this. You know, so you're being a jerk. That's not a fact. I bet the person that I'm talking to doesn't think that they're a jerk. Right? So you said, or you avoided me or something like that. That's closer to an observation without a judgment. You avoided me when I got home. You ignored me. Ignored me is, is a judgment. So how can we talk about what happened separate from our judgment of what happened? And then it's taking a guess so you, you say something awful, Derek, you're a, a jerk. And I say, I take a guess at why you might have said that. Are you saying that because I was late to this interview? And there's no penalty for guessing wrong. If I guess right, you're going to say, well, yeah. And, and it's actually, it diffuses the situation because you often anticipate me reacting with your same tone. So if you said something angrily to me, I'm going to respond back with the same angry tone. If I calmly say, are you saying that because I was late for this interview? Well, uh, yeah, you are. Or yeah, I was. So that's 
step two is, is why did you do that? And there's an actual step, like four steps that I'm blanking on the actual four-step process here. I quickly Googled it just to make sure I knew. Observation, okay. feeling, needs, and request. Okay, good, good, good. Observation, feeling, need, request. Yeah, okay, so observe without judging. What are you feeling? Okay, so that would be the step. Second one is taking the guess. Are you saying that because you were feeling harmed by me being late for this? That was very helpful for you to look that up. Are you saying that because you're feeling harmed that I was late or that I was you're feeling disrespected because I was late? And then the need is what are you needing right now? Are you needing for me to apologize? Do you need me to be more prompt next time you know, so we can get on the same page there? Request would be basically a request for whatever the next solution. And the request is request, not demand. You know, is it, are you actually requesting or are you demanding something? There's a, and that's just like observing without judgment. If you need me to answer in a particular way, that's a demand. If you're requesting and are comfortable with either way that answer might go, that's a, a request. That starts the process over because if I don't give you, if I say, no, I'm not willing to do that, then we could start round two and you could say, well, why not? Is it because you are feeling not part of the process? That's kind of the basics of it, I guess. Well, thank you for uh, humoring me and the guests as I put that on the spot. But I know you you appreciate nonviolent communication and I just think it's a great tool. So for those listeners who are interested, the book is is a really good, really great book that helps us communicate more effectively. So we've been talking about deconstructing awareness and getting into the elements of judgment, holding this space that it's okay that I have this judgment, but self-regulating to use your word. I want to specifically talk about your experience with the work in and around mindfulness and money. We can clearly see by the statistics here in Canada, the United States, no different, around the world, universally, we have this difficult relationship with money. Money continues to persist as one of the most stressful events in our lives. And it's so, when you take the time to look at it, it's so deeply interwoven into our emotions. And I want to get your take on, I'm going to let you get into the weeds of there, but mindfulness in helping cultivate a deepening sense of self-awareness. How, if at all, can it help us become more self-aware of ourselves, like using money as a window to get in there though? So we talked about attention and we talked about judgment and there's a couple more aspects that are going to be helpful to loop in money. One is acceptance. So accepting what is, and there's a lot of overlap between all of these parts, but acceptance is not trying to push away the bad and embrace the good. Accepting is taking whatever just happened. So you're sitting here in the present moment, whatever has happened, even if it was one hour ago or one second ago, that has already happened. Can you accept that? Acceptance doesn't mean like you're not going to do anything about it. Acceptance just means, okay, well, that milk is spilled. Should I cry over it? Or should I get some paper towels and clean it off? Right? So acceptance is just that right now, this is how it is. Or, or you are here. So can you accept it? And I do have a, an interesting story to anybody who likes jazz. I saw an interview with the legendary pianist Herbie Hancock and he said he was on tour with Miles Davis, very famous trumpeter. So even if these people went on tour and they have the same set list, you're getting different concerts because it's never going to be the same. So Herbie Hancock tells the story of Miles Davis's solo, and, and he was just kind of laying some backup piano music for Miles' solo. And in, in Herbie's words, he hit the wrong keys. He hit the wrong note, the wrong chord. It screwed up the whole, in his mind, 
it screwed up the whole thing. Now, this probably took half a second, but it was not even close. So he totally screwed it up, and he's blasting himself in what felt like for minutes, and it was probably, again, a matter of half of a second. And he said, Miles Davis took my mistake, and he made it sound like that's what we tried to do. He said, I, it took me years to figure out what did he do. And the answer was, I, Herbie Hancock, I judged the mistake, and Miles Davis accepted the mistake. That's a profound way to think about it. That just happened. What's the best step going forward? That's what you can do with accept. And it's similar to another Miles Davis quote, which is paraphrasing, so I guess it's not a quote. It's something to the effect of, if you played the wrong note, all you know is you played the wrong note. What makes it good or bad is what the next note is. Derek, these are the best analogies or explanations of acceptance I've ever heard. I, I love that. Yeah, and so you don't have to like that I played the, right, the wrong note. I don't have to like that somebody just cut me off in traffic. I don't have to like that somebody disrespected me. But if I can accept that that happened, again, not accepting that I love the, that, that I like it, but accepting that it's happened, I can now make a decision about what to do about it. I guess you could still be frustrated. You're accepting it, but you still can feel because my feelings don't lie. Yeah, because the difference is if I don't accept it, now I'm in a world of fantasy world, right? Either I pretend it didn't happen, I try to put it out of my mind, I try to push it away. But if you could accept, hey, this has happened. And there's a lot of chains. You know, thoughts can trigger emotions, which can trigger other thoughts. Feelings can trigger thoughts. Feelings can trigger emotions. All Everything can trigger everything else. And once we get stuck into one of these thought-emotion cycles, it's hard, it's hard to get out of until you connect back with the present moment. But if, if you get angry, you're going to feel that anger. And if you just pay attention to the anger, like, where do I feel this? What, is it actually, what does anger feel like? Curiosity mindset. Above all, mindfulness is having a curiosity mindset. What does anger feel like? Where does it manifest in you? It will be a very short emotion. People who stay angry for a long time, and I'm part of this because I'm not perfect, but to stay angry, you have to keep reminding yourself over and over all the reasons you have every right to be angry. And you might be right, but until you accept that this happened, you're not going to make a very good decision going forward if you are reminding yourself to be angry. That's a long-winded explanation of, of acceptance. But then identification. Are we identified with thoughts? It's, we have this tendency, you know, this inner critic that we were talking about, this voice in our head. If this voice was a roommate or that followed you around all day and talked to you the same way that this inner voice does, you would not be that person's friend anymore. But we don't have a choice with this voice in our head. So it, it can start to feel like okay, thinking is not a problem. Thinking without knowing that we're thinking, in other words, being lost in thought, that's a problem. It's a problem when we are identified with our feelings and our thoughts and our emotions. So then only after that can we make the, the appropriate choice, the mindful choice. And again, mindfulness does not dictate the response. We talked about earlier, you can still be frustrated and you can still respond in an appropriate manner, but this is going to be an intentional response rather than a gut reaction, an automatic reaction, something that you're going to probably regret later. So with those tenets in mind, what does it mean? What does that have to do with money? Well, we talk about money. Talking about money is a big taboo topic, and it's a bigger taboo than, I believe, this is just anecdotal, it's a bigger taboo than you know politics and sexuality and religion and weird health issues that we have. Those are taboos as well, but money touches every area of our life. So we can 
to go out for coffee and not talk about politics or sexuality or any of the other Tamu topics. But it's hard to escape money because, like it or not, the clothes that you wear signal something. The car that you drove up in signals something. The way that you wear your hair signals something. We're always in the social comparison mode. So money's everywhere. So that's going to be a lot of, of material for that inner critic that's in your head. So emotions, right? So many people will have past-based emotions around money, shame or guilt or frustration or anger or future-based ones like worry and fear. And without being mindful of it, we're in these now emotion cycles of being caught up with that shame, that money shame, for example, or, or shame is an extreme case. Let's call it guilt. I feel guilty that I did something, or I feel afraid of this purchase that I have to make, but I didn't quite save for it. I don't know why that's causing me a lot of worry. You can pay closer attention to these emotions. You can pay closer attention to what your body's telling you, your inner state. And you can make the more appropriate, mindful choice instead of reacting. Same thing with conversations. And this is a great segue from nonviolent communication. Because when we're talking about money, which is hard to talk about, it's easy to get into a shouting spiral where uh, we just start shouting at each other instead of pausing and then inserting the mindful choice. Right? So not judging what the other person said, accepting what they said, not identifying with our thoughts, and then choosing the appropriate response. Nonviolent communication is like a, a shortcut for that. Or like kind of the emotional-based ones. And there's other versions of that around spending awareness and things like that we can talk to. But I, I feel like I've been talking for a long time, so we can, I'll see if there's any questions that came up for you there. I appreciate that. Focus on attention, or sorry, acceptance and then identification. I guess I want to normalize how you said, I can't remember exactly. You, I think it was around angry. You still feel angry and get angry because you said like, I'm not perfect. And bringing nonviolent communication back, I feel like sometimes hearing these things, we could be like, wow, this makes perfect sense. Like what accept, like the, the, the value of accepting, like your wonderful example was, but in practice and in reality, we're such emotionally reactive creatures where I feel like we put, well, how do I get there? And nonviolent communication or other tools, I think, are so beneficial because they give us something to to try. And even if we're not good at it, at least we're, we're making the momentum towards being better. That's, again, why I, I thought we'd bring that up because we're probably not going to get this right. You know, I'm probably going to judge next time I try nonviolent communication but, you know, that awareness to use what you're doing, and now I have a little bit more awareness of what's happening. And that's what I hear coming out of you is it's slowly building that, as what Viktor Frankl has always said, that, that space between stimulus and response. When you started diving into this work, your background is money-focused, a lot of technical and financial planning education you have. So when you started learning about mindfulness and meditation in and around money, I can hear the curiosity you have to keep learning. You, you, you strike me as someone who likes to learn. But what were your initial expectations, if you had any, around what you might learn? And how did, which usually do, how did those expectations change? And did anything surprise you as you started diving into this mindfulness world with money? First, I kind of fell into a, a trap when I first started meditating. And I, I can't remember the seed, the initial hey, this is something you have to, to look into. I don't remember what got me to got into the, the mindfulness track there. 
I remember starting meditating and I had in my head that to meditate means to clear your head of all thoughts and to be in some meditative state where I'm just feeling pure consciousness, where I lose the shape of my body and I'm just a, a cloud of sensations. And I don't know if I have, but I probably think I could be wrong. Though, I've probably glimpsed a second or two of that level of awareness where I can strip everything away. But I kept on having these thoughts and I kept on having these thoughts. And I, kept, I thought, well, boy, I, I'm not good at this meditating thing. So I quit. I quit meditating. And the paradox is that I quit right when I got good. So let's take a step back here because what is meditation and how does that relate to mindfulness? These are often used interchangeably, but they are quite different things. Mindfulness is what we've been talking about. It's sharpening your attention, learning how to focus that attention and respond rather than react and not judge things or at least be aware of your judgments. That whole idea is being aware of what's going on. That's mindfulness. Meditation is going to the gym to become more mindful. Meditation is the training of being mindful. So if I want to go to the gym and work my biceps, I have to go lift heavy things and I'm not going to see those results right away. I'm going to see those results eventually, but that's the, the equivalence there. Do you think going to, going to lift weights for the future increased bicep is mindful? <laughs> that I'm not enjoying the actual curl in the moment? That's an interesting question. I think this is Frederick Nietzsche, who was quoted in Man's Search for Meaning, that you, you brought up Victor Frankl earlier, who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. So if I have the why in mind, I know why I'm working out, I know why I'm lifting these weights, then the how of the painful muscles makes sense because it's in context. So in that regard, yes, exercise yeah. is interesting. Because if you, if you took what it feels like right after you run a triathlon and you're in agonizing pain, if you could somehow lift that pain and stick it into somebody who was just sitting on the couch, that would be excruciating. It would be torture. But the difference is, you know why you're feeling that way. And that's in service mm -hmm. of something else. The person who, you, where if you were magically able to make them feel the same exact way, they have no idea what's happening. That's just going to be agonizing pain. It's the same sensations. One has a purpose, one does not. So you can partake in uncomfortable things mindfully. And especially if you know where that's going, if it has a purpose, then it all makes sense. It has the how to live, so to speak. And that was a, a personal thought because I, I do train for triathlons. And yeah, I think the more I embraced the process and not focused on that weird enjoyment of that one painful day, I became more mindful in the training and so forth. So my meditation then is training for the for being mindful. It's just the same way going to the gym is training for the triathlon or, or just that's a specific thing. But going to the gym is training to be healthier in general. Or you can meditate to be more mindful in general. So I start meditating. And the game is to recognize when you're lost in thought. That's the game. That's what I had wrong. What I thought the game was was to try to not think. The game is to recognize when you're lost in thought. So when I first started, if I did a 10-minute meditation and I remembered that I, oh, I've been thinking. I don't know how long I've been thinking. Okay, back to my breath. So focus on your breath. Meditation, mindfulness meditation, I better take a step back and define this. When you first start doing mindfulness meditation, the trick is to pick what we call an anchor or an object of meditation, which is just something to focus on. And when people first start, then it tends to be the breath because the breath is always with us. It's always there. So you can focus on what does it feel like to breathe? What are the physical sensations of breathing? So you close your eyes, you sit down, and then the, the phrase 
I learned from Joseph Goldstein, breathe and know that you're breathing. So what does it feel like to breathe in? What does it feel like to breathe out? So that's that flashlight. You're taking that flashlight of attention and you're holding it on your breath. You're holding it on that anchor. Eventually, and this is a fact, that's going to wander on somewhere. You're going to need to get distracted. And then at some point, one minute later, I remembered, oh, I've been thinking, bring it back to that anchor. And they focus on my breath again. One minute later, I realized, oh, I've been thinking again. So in the course of 10 minutes, if I remembered or recognized that I was lost in thought 10 times, I redirected back to my breath 10 times. As I got better, I might recognize every 15 seconds that I'm lost in thought. So now that's four times a minute. So that's, what is it, 40 times? I'm redirecting back to my, back to my breath. So now it starts to feel like, oh, I'm redirecting, redirecting, redirecting. Man, so I was redirecting more often. That's what made it feel like I wasn't doing it right is because I was redirecting. But the paradox is that's when I was getting better at it. When you notice you're lost in thought, that's the moment that you become mindful. And so you keep bringing it back, you keep bringing it back, and then it maybe doesn't get as far. You keep bringing it back, and it drifts, and it comes back, and it almost looks like a bicep curl. It drifts, and you bring it back, and it drifts, and you bring it back. And that's the training of concentration, the, the training of attention. So that was my experience, my early experience with that. That I looped that into, yeah, I apologize, I totally lost. I got off on my own tangent there. I forgot what your initial question was. We're going with the flow. You're making me think of something that I've heard you talk about now. So we've got this idea of going to the, the, the mind gym, doing meditation to help us become more aware, to get that flashlight. And I really appreciated that example of you're doing well when you notice you're not aware. Because I think anyone who's meditated or starting to has that self-talk, I'm not good at this. We have meditation as a tool. Quickly, I know people are all interested in this. Do you use an app or something like that to help you? Or do you, you personally, do you do guided meditations? I still subscribe to a couple of apps. I don't use them for meditating as often, although sometimes I, I will. This gets a little bit more advanced. There are further aspects that you can get, like trying to break, uh, this could get esoteric, but you can break the illusion of the self, this feeling that there's an I inside your head. You can break that. I haven't gotten there yet. So sometimes I'll use the guided ones to help with that. But just for a for mindfulness meditation, I i don't use the app per se. There are timers in the apps that I will use. A lot of these apps have a lot of content, podcast type content, which is fascinating. So I use a lot of those. We're going to the mind gym through meditation to help us become more mindful. And this leads us to intentional financial living that I've heard you talk about. What is intentional financial living according to Derek? How can we get this through this money mindfulness? The instruction for people learning to meditate is to do something and know you're doing it. So sit and know you're sitting. And that just means what does it feel like to have gravity pull you into your chair? Where do you feel the contact points? Breathe and know that you're breathing. The and know that you're breathing piece is the non-distracted part. Can you do something and know that you're doing something? So that can be applied to life by, say, walk your dog and know you're walking your dog. Have a conversation with your spouse and know you're having a conversation with your spouse. Don't be lost thinking about what you need to do tomorrow or what happened today. Have a conversation with your spouse. So with money, it could be spend and know that you're spending or more generally speaking, make a financial decision and know that you're making a decision. And you might have heard the concept of pain of paying. It should sting a little bit when we use our money, right? So 
it used to be cash and we'd have to count out our cash and hand it over to somebody and they would have to grip it out of my tight grip or take it out of my tight grip. And then they give me different cash back, smaller bills and some coins. And then I knew how much I was spending. And then checks came around and a little bit more abstract because the same piece of paper can buy something for $1,000 or something for $2. But I still had to write it out in numbers and then write it out in words and then write it again in my register. So I knew exactly how much I was spending. And then fast forward to today, it's you're tapping your phone to things for some cases, or you linked an account two years ago, and now click, 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 something comes in a day. Or at the beginning of the pandemic, I linked an account, credit card to you know a food delivery app, tap, 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 food's here in 30 minutes. It doesn't feel like I'm spending money. If you ask me logically, of course, I know. Did you spend money? I guess I did. Yes, of course I did. But it doesn't feel like you're spending money. So the pain of paying is gone. And a different way of saying that is the awareness of your spending is gone or we lack mindfulness with regard to our spending. So how we use money mindfully is to spend and know we're spending. And there's a couple of ways to, in my opinion, to do that. And first is know that we're spending. So I, I talk about a concept of financial purpose. What's your money for? That's a, a bigger topic. So the Cliff Notes version is it's defining what is your money for what is the purpose of your money? It helps break the idea that money is a goal. It's not a goal. It's just a tool, an important tool that we need to learn how to use. But what is this tool for? And so knowing what this tool called money is for helps us make a decision ahead of time. I'm about to make this purchase. Is this aligned with what money needs to do for me? And just by asking that question, just by asking other questions, what will I do with this? How will I feel tomorrow? What if I waited until tomorrow? Just getting here in your head and asking some questions starts to grow the impulse and the purchase, grow that space. Just like Franco, put the space in between stimulus and response. And now you've turned an impulse of purchase into a deliberate purchase or an intentional purchase. So that's basically what I'm saying. After the fact, you can look at your spending and the, the apps and the systems that people use. You can categorize it however you want to see it. So th there are some general you know, budgeting categories people can use. But if you can tailor a system to exactly how you want to see it. You know, for example, this is one I use. So it hits home. Dining out is a general category, right? Well, for me, it doesn't tell me the whole story. So how do I want to see my spending? Well, I want to see intentional dining out, you know, date nights and eating before an event and a networking happy hour from impulsive dining out. Time I was just too lazy to make lunch. And I want to see that every week. How does that look? How much intentional dining out am I doing? Yeah, that's cool, because I tried to do that. I was doing that intentionally. But how much impulsive dining out am I doing? And this is an after-the-fact awareness that helps hold up a mirror on what has just happened. If I can do this once a week, it's long enough that I don't have to do it every day, because most people don't want to be you know, personal finance experts in spreadsheets and apps all the time. But it's not waiting a month where there's a daunting number of transactions to go through. So if I can take a look every week and reminding myself, what have I just done? Again, without judgment, I'm not labeling myself good or bad, but you spent $200, dummy. What's wrong with you? No, it's, hey, this just happened. That's good to know. You're not looking for a particular outcome. You're not necessarily trying to curb your spending, although these will be, for the most part, consequences that will happen. Your spending will tend to decrease when you start to see what's going on under the hood, but that's not an outcome that we should be attached to. We should be attached to the process of just taking a look underneath the hood. What's going on? How have I spent my money? Before I spend my money, is this a good use of my money? 
that concept of detaching from the outcome, I think is really insightful. And you're right. Like I, I could even, I was envisioning myself do this was as you were talking about it, that just observing it probably will create larger shifts in behavioral change than shaming myself or telling myself I'm bad because my budget was offside. Right. Because that's going to trigger avoidance because now yeah, if I shame myself, now I feel shame. And what am I going to do if I want to protect myself from feeling shame? So now I'm not going to look because I know that's the thing that caused the shame last mm. time. So now mm-hmm. I've just started, I've just gone down an avoidance path. So we go back to acceptance, eh? Exactly. Yes. So we're, we're touching high level on many things here. We've dove into a few. What has changed, if anything at all, in how you see money purpose or your money purpose now that you've been diving into this wonderful world of mindfulness? Not much has changed other than it's gotten deeper and more refined. So my understanding of purpose and meaning has expanded. And there's a lot of overlap between that and mindfulness. So financial purpose is, generally speaking, what is your money for? You know, the idea being most people, if you're listening to this, probably, you don't need more money in the in the strictest sense of the word need. You could sell everything you have and you could move to Guatemala or or Peru or some low cost of living country and you could survive. But you don't want to just survive. What do you want to do besides survive? That's what your money's for. And so if you can start to craft an idea of what do I need this money to do for me, that gives you kind of a, a beacon or a flag in the ground that you can follow towards where you're going. And just because that reminded me, there's another kind of aspect of this that I've been studying a lot. And those who haven't read this book, there's a, a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying by Bronnie Ware. And this is an end-of-life nurse, or she used to be, and she worked only with people who were on their deathbed, caring for them and making sure they were comfortable and so on. And she, as she was having conversations with them, she realized many, almost all of them regretted some aspect of their life. They felt like they mislived in some way. After having more and more conversations, she realized they kind of spilled into five broad categories. So she wrote this blog post and then book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And one of them is, the second one, is I worked too hard. So people get to the end of their life and they look back and say, I worked too hard, I worked too much, I ruined relationships to try to get more opportunities, I shouldn't have done all this working. So when I help clients in, in, in my articles that I write, I try to guide people away from making more money for the sake of more money. That money is worthless in and of itself. It has to be used for something. So nobody lies on their deathbed wishing that they ruined more relationships to try to get some more money. Nobody lies on their bed, deathbed happy to be the person that died with the most jelly beans. You can't take it with you. So what is the actual point? And the point is your financial purpose. So outside of financial purpose, uh, just purpose in general, I used to be confused, maybe not the right word, but I used to use meaning and purpose kind of synonymously, meaning and purpose. Everybody always talks about it that way. But what I've come to learn is that purpose is one aspect of meaning. So to live a meaningful life, it's important to have a purpose. You know, what are you, what's it all for? Where are you heading? So that's kind of the future-based component of it. But there's also a coherence piece, which says, does life make sense? Has my life made sense before? Can I make sense of all these things that have happened? And this can be easily applied to money because we've all we've all got a money journey. We've all got a money history. 
And those have all shaped the money story that we tell ourselves now. They have all shaped our money scripts. Do they make sense? Do you know why you tend to avoid money? Do you know why you get triggered when this topic comes up? Because that's that sense of coherence. Does it make sense? And then there's a, a sense of, does your life have value? Do you feel like life is worth living? Are there things in your life that make that make you feel like my life is inherently valuable? So those three pieces of meaning, purpose is one of them. And mindfulness has its hand in all three of those pots, helping make sense of what's happened. Mindfulness helps you accept the past and make and be more resilient with what has happened. What lessons have you learned in the present? Is life valuable? Well, if you can connect to the present moment and be in your experience, there's a common, not common, but I've seen a question asked in different contexts. Think about the happiest moment of your life or something, some version of that. And for the most part, in that happiest moment of your life, you were there. You were in the past, ruminating or, or worrying about what happened in the past. You weren't worried about the future, the happiest moment of your life. You were in that moment. So mindfulness can help you connect and feel like there's value. And then the, the, the purpose piece that we've talked about helps you put life in context and see where do you want to go. Thank you for that. So many wonderful things you said there. And you hear these benefits of, I'll use the word mindfulness. I know there's so many different aspects of it, but bringing a mindfulness to a relationship with money can help reduce that noise, help all the distractions to be in that moment. It's making me think of this Canadian musician named Feist, and she's got a lyric that I did look up because I, I don't memorize them all, but when you're talking about this awareness of being in the moment, she says here, and we'll collect the moments one by one. I guess that's how the future is done. And why it speaks to me is because uh, to what you're saying here is that these hyper, I don't know if hyper, but these moments that we have focus on are these two, what you're saying, happiest moments, but that's what the future is. You know, we're always working for the future, but it, it's right now in a sense. That is, Amazing. I love, I love that because the idea is as you, as you look back on your life, it's going to be a collection of present moments. Now, the, the caution is that what I just said, it's always now, it's always the present moment, the presence that we have and so on. That is not the same as saying you don't have to plan for the future because there will be future present moments that need your attention. But that doesn't mean that we need to get lost in thought, thinking about the future so it distracts us from the present. We can still reminisce and learn lessons from the past mindfully. We can still plan for the future mindfully. It's just, are we lost in thought in the past or future, or are we intentionally thinking about the past or the future? Yeah, I like that because, I mean, feeling secure about the future maybe even gives us the permission to enjoy more of the, the present moment. An individual who sometimes when he's available joins me on the podcast. He's a, a musician from Hawaii and his name's Root Hub and he sings brilliant songs, but we've been making a couple. We're making a money album actually. And one of the lines was the future is a gift, but the treasure is the here and now. And the idea was around that the future like is a gift, but we need to respect it as a gift to plan for, but the real treasure is the here and now. So it's similar to, to, to some of this conversation. Yeah. Um, so Derek, probably two years ago, we chatted on the podcast and I consistently have been asking people this question and maybe things have changed because I did ask you this question. 
at least I, I'm certain I did, but let's say that you are somewhere where you're totally mindful, you're at end of life, maybe someone's about to interview you, you for the top five regrets of the dying part two, and you're deciding to look back at your life and just document right on what you learned about having a healthy, thriving relationship with money. What would be a theme to that journal, letter, whatever you want to call it? That money is a tool and it's an important tool. It's an, a tool that we need to learn how to use. And it's an important tool that needs to be tended for and cared for, but it is just a tool. That's not nothing more. So any pressure that we have, any desire or impulse that we have to assign meaning to money other than as a story of value or a tool to get what we want out of life or a tool to survive, that needs to be looked into a little bit. So don't put too much meaning into money as money and think of money as a tool. I like how you said that that feeling, if it's there, it has to be looked into. I think that is a, a window into that self-awareness journey. Well, Derek, thank you so much. Where can people find more about you and your wonderful weekly newsletter with your brilliant drawings? <laughs> Thanks for it. So moneyhealth.blog, that's where that's where the news, newsletter sits. It's a free weekly newsletter, always will be. And every week, some kind of topic about everything we've been talking about today and some other things as well. And moneyhealthsolutions.com, that's, that's kind of where my business is, where I help individuals. And if I may, there's a an app that I've been an early adopter of, to, speaking of mindful money decisions, it's called... Allo, it's short for allocate, allo.finance. And it's- How do you spell it? A-L-L-O. Okay. Dot finance. And it is a tool that I've been providing feedback on, some guidance on to help deliver mindful spending. So that, that after the fact stuff, here's what my transactions are. How can I assign those to categories that make the most sense for me so that I can look back and see what has happened? Again, not judgmentally, just to see under the hood, right? Just like the mirror, the mirror doesn't care what I look like, but I need to look in the mirror in order to do anything about my appearance. This tool acts like a, a mirror towards what's happened. Great. I definitely will link to that in the show notes and I'm going to go check that out. Very interesting. It's, it's exciting to see the development of it. It's, it's come a long way. Wonderful. All right, Derek, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here with myself and our audience. Without a top, my wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sail